never occurred to me whilst writing that book that you actually needed, if you were going to talk about feminism, you actually needed to define what a woman was. It was just taken for granted, really, even just five, six years ago, that feminism was about women's rights and that being a woman was a matter of, of your biological sex. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro and with me is the incredibly unwoke but politically ambiguous <laughs> Ricky Allpunk. Yes, that's true. I think you've, you've, you've got me, you've pinned me down. Not quite sure where you're at, like what <laughs> what's going on. That's the new one, yeah. isn't it? It's like sort of in throw, just sort of saying there's something not quite yeah, right. Yeah. I'm the great confuser. <laughs> yeah, I'm confused. <laughs> As Vince, Vince Noir would say, I'm the great confuser. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what what do we have on the cards tonight? Uh, I believe we uh, have a have a big interview. We do. Uh, they call this a get, all right? A Ooh, big a, get. A big get. Okay. All right. <laughs> this is Joanna <laughs> Williams, incredible uh, uh, author, uh, academic from one of our favorite websites, Spike. She's written a new book, How Woke One, and we're going to interview her. And she's we're going to talk about. Do, 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 did you know we were going to talk about some woke stuff? Or I I, I have been briefed. Yes. You have. Okay. Are you ever surprised? No. That that's what no. we're going to talk about? Never. All right. Well, neither am I, but I'm delighted. Let's do it. Let's go. Dr. Joanna Williams is an author, commentator, and the associate editor of Spiked. She taught at the University of Kent for over 10 years and until recently was the head of education and culture at Policy Exchange. She's since founded CIEO, a UK-based think tank of authors and academics. Joanna has written for The Sun, The Daily Mail, The Telegraph, The Spectator, The Guardian, and The New York Post. Her books include Consuming Higher Education, Why Learning Can't Be Bought, Academic Freedom in an Age of Conformity, Women versus Feminism. Uh, her latest book is How Woke One, The Elitist Movement That Threatens Democracy, Tolerance, and Reason. Joanna, welcome to The New Flesh. Thank you. I'm really pleased to be joining you. Thank you very much indeed. Now, your new book, How Work One, can you give us uh, the genesis of the project? Like what inspired you to write write this book? So it kind of taps into issues that I've been concerned about for a number of years and, and have been apparent in the books that I've written previously that you mentioned there. So I've been interested in free speech and academic freedom for a long time now. And um, one thing that becomes very obvious when you begin to look up kind of woke ideas more broadly and, and people who I would describe as either activists or advocates for a certain woke position is they're incredibly hostile to free speech and um, I guess as part of that that the other bit of the title of my book on academic freedom is in an age of conformity I've been very very interested in groupthink and how you get certain orthodoxies that seem to emerge in society and become very difficult to question. And if you do start to prod and poke at these intellectual orthodoxies, you quickly become branded a, a heretic. And, um, you know, it's very, it's very difficult to then get, get around them. And, and even though it might not be a very explicit form of censorship, it becomes a, a kind of prohibition on what you can and can't say. So that's one thing I've been very interested in. But then I've also been interested in just changing views around gender and feminism. And obviously the whole issue there of what it means to be a woman has become a, like probably the most controversial topic in British politics, if, if not in many other countries in the Western world. 
Like if somebody had said to me 20 years ago, you know, you, you spend your days discussing what does it mean to be a woman, I would have laughed. I would have thought this was the most ridiculous thing anyone could say to me. And yet this has become kind of the most contentious thing. So I've also been interested in kind of critical race theory and what's going on there. And I guess woke in and of itself is a very controversial word. And, you know, perhaps that's what we can come on and talk about. But I guess for me, writing this book was just a way to bring together all of these different things that I've been interested in. Um, but, um, but, but to try and point to some connections, if you like, between them. Um, it, it seems to me that if you drew a Venn diagram of, of kind of people's views and people who do hold certain views around gender are also very likely to be hostile to free speech, are also very likely to buy into views around critical race theory. And there is a huge overlap between these different positions. And I think Woke's quite useful in being able to identify kind of where all these overlaps lie. Yes, well, in my research, uh, I was re-watching some of your interviews and and much of what we talk about today in this space, cultural, in, in, let's just say the culture wars if, if for, for purposes of, of the discussion, uh, you know, a lot of that stuff wasn't even above ground yet in some of the videos I've seen you talking. So, for example, in your hour-long interview with the clean-shaven Dave Rubin, for example, uh, there was not one mention of the word woke, lived experience, pronouns, or lesbians with penises, it all has happened seemingly so quickly. How on earth did this thing get out of control? Yeah, I mean, that's such a good point. So I wrote a book, um, uh, Women Versus Feminism, uh, as, as recently, you know, just, just a very, very few years ago. And now I look back and I think even just kind of five, six years later, I would approach that entire book differently because it never occurred to me whilst writing that book, again, that you actually needed, if you were going to talk about feminism, you actually needed to define what a woman was. It was just taken for granted, really, even just five, six years ago, um, that feminism was about women's rights and that being a woman was a matter of, of your biological sex. Uh, clearly, even at that point, there were people who were beginning to challenge these ideas. You know, I, th I think it would be wrong to suggest that, you know, there was nothing. And then suddenly all of these woke ideas broke through. And I think it would be a mistake to suggest that because it would kind of imply that woke ideas are really powerful and have kind of won this intellectual or moral victory on the basis of the strength of their arguments. And I, I don't think that's true um, at all. I think many of these ideas have been bumbling away underneath the surface for quite a number of, of years now. If you look at something like critical race theory, uh, I mean, it's even kind of, you can even go back to the end of the 1970s to trace the, the origins. But I think what has happened is that these have moved from being quite marginal positions, um, perhaps on the fringes of academia or um, quite disparate, um, views in perhaps in extreme left-wing positions they, they've moved and become far more mainstream and again you know I, I think what's changed in the past few years has not really been anything to do with the strength of, of woke or or the kind of veracity of woke thinking it's much more completely the opposite it's to do with the, the weakness of other left-wing ideas um, when 
particularly, I, I, I'm going to talk about the UK, I guess, just because it's the country I'm most familiar with, obviously. Um, but if you look at the extent to which the Labour Party has really given up on working class people in the UK, um, particularly, you see it most clearly around Brexit, for example, um, where, uh, you know, they, they were absolutely horrified that mainly working class people, it has to be said, not, not exclusively, obviously, but, but predominantly working class people kind of went against, didn't do as they were told, you know, weren't obedient. Um, every establishment figure was saying you have to vote um, to remain in the EU and working class people didn't didn't follow what they were told to do. And, and it's almost was was conceived of as almost like an act of betrayal. Like how dare you do this to us? And I think having abandoned faith in the working class as agents of political change, as progressive agents of political change, you then kind of create this vacuum at the heart of, of labour movements, of, of work, traditional working class movements more broadly. Um, and how do you fill that vacuum, what do you put in it, and, and kind of turning to these different identity groups uh, and promoting identity politics rather than class politics has, has been a way, I think, for a number of these previously uh, class-based labour movements to, to go in. And I think that's where the, the kind of rise of woke has come from. Mm. Well, maybe at this point, it, it might be useful to, to to maybe get your perspective on what what a definition of woke would be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a, become an incredibly contested term, and I, and I, I have seen. You know, I did think very long and hard about whether this was the right term to use. Um, it, it's become a bit of a political football. I mean, it's got very very interesting origins. It began in um, American culture, particularly with Black American subcultures going right the way back to the 1920s, 1930s, you know, very, very much kind of pre-civil rights era, where stay woke was a kind of whispered saying between black people to remind them to be alert, to be alert to the risks of police brutality, uh, to be alert to the threat from other white people and the threat that this could pose to their real physical safety. From there, you know, it's kind of died down, but, but then came back into fashion in a massive way, really with Black Lives Matter um, and the kind of anti-racist movements that we saw in, in, in around, not just in the past couple of years, but, but in around the kind of 2010s. Um, and it was appropriated then by a section of the left that, ironically, I would say a section of the left that nowadays really bangs on about the wrongs of cultural appropriation. You know, they're very, very quick to take to task anybody who they say, think engages in, in cultural appropriation, you know, wears the wrong type of earrings, has the wrong kind of hairstyle. Um, they are very, very quick to, to kind of have cultural appropriation held up as this huge crime. But actually what they engaged in, I would say, was an act of linguistic appropriation. They appropriated this word woke. They robbed it of all its kind of underground potential, um, kind of radical implications. And they took it to mean this very, very general sense of, of being alert, being politically correct, you might say, being right on, um, being aware of social injustices and, and being quick to promote social justice as a movement. Um, obviously, that robs the word of all radical potential and it makes it into this very kind of wishy-washy, liberal, right on, but also kind of morally superior 
sense. And it was around kind of 2016, 2017, a word that people were quite ready to adopt, you know, quite proud to show off their social justice credentials. So you even had uh, Jack Dorsey when he was CEO of Twitter, you know, on stage with the T-shirt, you know, people were writing articles about, you know, um, why men are more sexy if they're woke, for example, and who are the wokest men in the world and, and, you know, how wonderful it is for but these people, that these people exist and kind of act as shining beacons to the rest of us mere plebs. Um, and I think that, you know, people kind of really took on that word themselves. But obviously then, you know, people, there was a backlash to this. People, normal people, it seems to me, ordinary people, actually don't like being told what to do, what to think. They don't like people like Jack Dorsey with all his millions sitting on stage saying, essentially, I'm more aware of social injustices than you lot are. You know, you need to follow me and and be more like me. So people who were critics started to point and, and use the term woke themselves to say, look, you know, these are woke people and this is what's wrong with being woke. So then you've kind of got this huge political football going backwards and forwards where some people are just, oh, well, all woke means is just kind of being anti-racist or just being anti-sexist, not being transphobic. And other people kind of saying, well, actually, that's a bit disingenuous. It means a lot more than that. It comes with all this political baggage. So now, you know, very rare, I think, to find anybody who does actually claim that they are woke. You know, there's no kind of woke club or woke society. I don't think you'd ever, ever, ever get Jack Dorsey wearing a I am so woke T-shirt again. (laughs) You know, you're not going to get these listicles of of the best woke people in the world. Um, But, you know, in some ways that makes it very nebulous. It makes it a very kind of fluid um, political I think ideology is perhaps too strong a word for it, but but kind of viewpoint, world perspective, if you like. Um, it, it makes it very nebulous and very difficult to pin down. But I think that's kind of a deliberate move, if that doesn't sound too conspiratorial. I think it suits a, an awful lot of people not to have this label attached, not for connections to be drawn and dots to be kind of connected up between what different people think and, and who's standing for what. And um, in a way, that's why I did want to use the word woke in the title of my book, because they hate it. And um, <laughs> it's, it, it's almost hard to get away from now, isn't it? Like, like you almost have to use that word. It is, but I think it also becomes useful for all the reasons why nobody does like to describe themselves as woke. It becomes very, very useful because it allows critics to identify um, certain political trends, you know, certain political trends that, that, like I say, lots of, of white people would rather we didn't identify that we didn't criticise. And if you can't name them, it becomes very difficult to criticise them, whereas actually being able to put that name on them and say, you know, this this is a kind of woke perspective, it becomes easier to criticise it. Yes, well, they are slippery like that, uh, and I think that uh, the it says everything that uh, the income, the potential incoming CEO of, of Twitter has said that the woke mind virus is is one of the worst things you know to happen uh, ever. So I think that's a good comparison there, Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk. Uh, but let's perhaps uh, shift to some media subjects in your in your book. Now, a chapter in your book is dedicated to what you explain as a shift 
of uh, even mainstream left-wing thinking because you mentioned the Labor Party there. And it, and it is certainly happening in Australia too. We just do it a little, little slower, a bit lazier. Uh, the shift from social class to identity. Now, this is still yet th- to break through fully to the mainstream, th- this idea that you've put forward here because I don't think people bring it up an- enough. Uh, but I think it's the skeleton key to this whole thing. So can you talk us through this this shift from uh, on the... On, roughly on the left, to from, from class to identity? Yeah, I think, again, I think it's something which is not a completely recent phenomena. I think it's something which has been going on, I, I would say, probably for a, a good four decades now, at least, um, where the... Uh, left wing especially you know I think you can you can trace it in two ways I think there's definitely an academic track that a number of people other than me have pointed to you look at the likes of a kind of Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay you know in in cynical theories I think they've done a a fantastic job of really nailing what's happened in academia Um, and I'd absolutely praise them for uh, writing that book and, and really shining a spotlight on these things but for me, it leaves a massive question unanswered, which is, is why do these kind of some quite obscure um, academic theories, many of them uh, kind of stemming from, from France and French intellectuals of the 1960s and the 1970s, why should that have come to influence politics in the UK in, in such a big way? And, and to me, as I say, it's, it's really a sign of the defeat of the left and, and the kind of the slow defeat of the left that's been taking place over the course of several decades. And, and much of that, I think, comes down to, um, again, uh, attitudes towards the working class and and an ability to tap into, if you like, the the aspirations of working class people. So, you know, it seems to me that, uh, I I hope I'm not saying anything terribly controversial here, but it seems to me that that what many working class people want is a better life for themselves. You know, I would say most people want that or, you know, the idea that their children are going to have a better life than they had, um, that struggling for, for money to heat your house, to provide food, is not a nice way to live and actually being able to have a a more prosperous society and a better standard of living makes life easier, you know, and and that's kind of just a normal human instinct. Obviously, the, the poorer you are, the more those things are kind of real pressing concerns for you. The wealthier you are, the more you can afford to have the luxury, if you like, of, of just, just not having to worry about those things so much. And um, I think the problem is that if you go back far enough, you know, the left could tap into those concerns. Um, So I guess, you know, at risk of kind of sounding very, very old, one of my formative childhood experiences would be I grew up in the northeast of England in a very industrial area. Middlesbrough was the name of the town, you know, and and throughout the period of of my childhood, it was a period of industrial decline, you know, all, all of that heavy industry uh, diminished, but um, it didn't do so without a fight. You know, there was a sense of, of trade unions defending workers' rights, of, of the left being able to speak to this ambition, this aspiration in people. You know, I'm talking very, very basic things here to have a job, to have a job where you go out, you work hard, but you actually get a decent wage that can your family can can live off. 
And I think the left has proved itself now completely incapable of speaking to those aspirations in people and not only kind of incapable, but but find such aspirations morally problematic. You know, to put very bluntly, they don't match up to the net zero um, green agenda. You know, if you want to create a more prosperous society, it helps to have abundant and cheap sources of energy and fuel. If you're kind of completely about not growing the economy, not letting people have more, um, not investing in power and infrastructure and good jobs, then you're essentially consigning people to have worse quality of life than they used to have. And I think when ordinary people then have kind of looked at what the left has on offer, this kind of immiserated existence of, you know, grow your own cottage cheese in your back garden and knit your sunflower seeds together and go and kind of be happy but poor. Um, people look but, at but, that but, but, and... But, Sorry, Johnny. You, you don't even get to be happy, though. You have to. You, they, you, 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 yeah. It seems. It seems like all of that stuff plus every day is a struggle session where you have to talk about, you know, how terrible you are. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> but but I don't think everybody has to talk about how terrible they are. I think the more people have kind of demanded more, and the more working class people have left the left. The left, rather than having what to me would seem normal, you have this moment of self-reflection then, and you think, hmm, are we the bad guys? You know, are we <laughs> are we kind way. of yeah. doing something wrong? Is there something we should be doing to appeal more to the concerns of ordinary people? For some bizarre reason, you know, I can't quite get my head around. The left has never, it seems to me, had that moment of reckoning, and instead all they've done is kind of blame ordinary people, you fools, you idiots, you have lost track of us rather than the other way around. You know, you want more, you you arrogant, you know, you're all white, uh, supremacist, um, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. And the, the left's response to not being able to meet the aspirations of normal people is actually to insult normal people, to leave them behind. And to to kind of say, well, we're morally superior and, and to kind of redefine the working class as being this hodgepodge of different identity groups where, you know, the working class then becomes uh, a middle class black woman who works for the BBC, you know, has an enormous salary, a very nice job working from home. But because she's black and female, you know, uh, can present herself with all these kind of victim points and the left can say, well, this is the working class that we're appealing to nowadays. Are, are you surprised that, that that introspection has and that self-reflection hasn't happened post-Brexit and, and post-Trump? Yeah, I, I, well, I wish I could say I was surprised. I'd be lying if I said I was surprised. I mean, I guess it's what we've come to expect. Um, it's, it's not, I mean, I, I don't know about surprising, it's frustrating and you just think, come on, you know. But I think, I think what's happened is, is in in complete contrast to a moment of reflection. And I think this is again comes back to your question about where is woke come from? Why are we talking about woke so much nowadays? It does seem to me that something did happen with Brexit and Trump on the left and their response to it, and that was just like a massive doubling down of of kind of where 
of their positions, a massive doubling down of the accusations of racism and homophobia and transphobia, and a massive doubling down on this view that you can use schools and the education system to um, actually change people's ideas without having to be subjected to democracy. And, and, you know, this is where work becomes an incredibly anti-democratic position. If you can um, kind of create the basis for bringing about the changes you want to see in society without having to put your agenda to ordinary people, without having to win elections, uh, without being subjected to free speech and debate, then they, they've kind of found ways to do that, it seems to me pushing woke through institutions rather than through democratic processes. Well, it, it seems that the elites are, are really driving this movement because in many cases it, it benefits them to do so. It's, because if you're making a lot of money, uh, one way you can get a, a moral makeover, so to speak, is to espouse niche, cutting-edge social justice views. So, so I guess my, my question is, how have these people managed to avoid scrutiny that they've convinced us all that they're interested only in social justice, but 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 often they're they're really rich. They're rich as all get out. You know? <laughs> it kind of makes you a bit jealous, doesn't it? I so, well, said, where, where did I go wrong? You know, why didn't I just learn to recite this woke script and kind of ka-ching, 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 yeah. cash in on it all, you know, the cost of, of having genuine principles. Um, but seriously, you know, I... I wouldn't in some ways I wouldn't underestimate the extent to which they genuinely do believe in this stuff and I think they are convinced that they are right on some of these issues I think I think in some ways it's it's too easy for us to just see it as a bit of an act and and I don't think it is I think I think there is a lot of genuine belief but that doesn't mean to say that it doesn't also benefit them enormously as well um I think as you say you know it there's a kind of, oh, look over here, whilst I quickly kind of exploit workers in developing countries over here. But look, everybody at this great slogan, I've now put on my ice cream packaging or something like that. I think you've got some of that going on. Um, and I think they can be quite upfront about that. But I think it benefits them in, in other ways as well. You know, if you're the boss of a kind of a major employer if you you know you're, you're looking at employing a few thousand workers or whatever and um your workers get together and demand a pay rise you're in quite a vulnerable position if those people then threaten to go on strike you know you're then looking at having to potentially pay them more money if those workers are so busy kind of being divided amongst themselves, you know, into between black people and white people, men and women and transgender people, gay people and straight people, and are so focused on or being told that really what they should be focusing on is identifying microaggressions and, you know, did somebody not make eye contact with you? Um, you know, did somebody stare at you in the lift? You know, did, did all these terrible things happen to you? Come and tell us and, and we're just so kind and we'll deal with all of this for you um that gives you enormous power as a boss you know you're really able to then kind of divide and rule we not only divide and rule but look as if you're the good guy in all of this as well so i think i think although i don't think it's a conspiracy i don't think they're pretending to believe this i do think there are some very very distinct advantages for them 
Well, it, the situation seems so topsy-turvy that the media and social media seem to spend, and you've spoken about this in some of your work, they spend a lot of time talking about the wage differences between celebrities and presenters and sports stars than, as we've said, than, than working-class women, for instance, or the plight of women in Afghanistan or something like that. Now, again, we're not pushing conspiracies, but sometimes it does feel like aggressive misdirection like like at, at, at best some it seems where they the it's being ignored and then at worst sometimes you go why why are why did that story why is the guardian obsessed with you know some like actress getting paid slightly less millions of dollars for something and but but they won't you know what i mean like and then you sort of and then social media takes it up and then we're all arguing about it and i'm like wait a minute why is this yeah. happening so aggressively no well i think that's a very good point um you know i i i would be tempted to agree with you but i i think there's something a bit more to it than than you're suggesting you know maybe i'm going to be more insulting now i don't know i i think there's just a huge element of narcissism um, I think the people who, you know, in the UK work for the BBC, write for The Guardian, the people who have time all day to spend tweeting their every thought, you know, which at the, end, at the end of the day, if you work in a supermarket or you're working in a factory, you don't have that time to uh, spend every engage few with, Engage with the fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. And um, I think that there's just... Again, it's kind of not having any, having lost touch a little bit with reality, having lost touch with the views of ordinary people. You become completely self-obsessed, you know, these people. And again, I think the other thing that social media gets accused of, but I think actually takes place in the real world, especially post-pandemic, is, you know, we live in these kind of bubbles. Increasingly, society has become, people have become kind of, not just atomized, but but rarely encounter. I think people rarely encounter in a in a serious way where they're absolutely forced to engage with people who are seriously different from them. I don't mean different in terms of skin color or sexuality, but but actually come from a completely different walk of life to they did. If you think in the past, you know, and again, I guess I'm going back a good 50, 60 years now the role that a church would have played, for example, and I'm not on about in terms of, of kind of belief in God or, or how belief or lack of belief would have shaped people's views, but but something like a church or even a local pub um, would have brought together disparate people, you know, from all walks of life, who all they had in common was that they lived in the same geographical area. And, you know, you who would you be sitting next to in church or talking to before and afterwards or having a pint with in the local pub would be people who could be very, very different to you from a very different income bracket. And it would be a lot harder to ignore their concerns. But it seems we've lost a lot of those institutions that, that serve to bring together disparate people and actually force you to have contact with people who had a very different life to you. So the more we become ensconced in these kind of bubbles, both social media bubbles, but also I think increasingly real, real life bubbles, um, you know, we, we don't meet people who have a very different life to ourselves. And so I think when Guardian journalists or, you know, it's not just the Guardian, it's lots of the mainstream media in the UK, you know, write articles about how like the most, the biggest problem for women is that, uh, you know, officers tend to have the central heating set too low because it's set to men's body temperature rather than women's <laughs> body temperature. You know, I, I think they don't think, oh, you know, this is just a massive distraction. 
I think they genuinely do believe that that really is the biggest problem facing women because they've gone around and they've talked to 10 of their best friends and 10 of their best friends who all happen to live in the same few streets, you know, probably attended the same school, um, all have the same kind of working from home stroke media type of jobs, creative use that term very loosely, jobs, you know, also, oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. That is the biggest problem I've got at the moment. It's freezing where I work. So they write these articles thinking this really is kind of where it's at in terms of cutting edge commentary. And it's narcissism. You're right, it's a distraction, but it's also kind of underpinned by this incredible narcissism that your world and your way of seeing society is the only way of seeing making sense of the world. I'm sure all those women in Afghanistan are, you know, all getting together, <laughs> <laughs> complaining about the temperature of the air conditioning. Uh, now, one of the most striking parts of your book, you state that, and this this is a quote, today uh, we have people in positions of power who lack moral authority. They head up institutions that lack moral legitimacy. The situation has come about slowly over the course of several decades. One cause is that many institutions no longer have a sense of the importance of their core purpose. Uh, many teachers, for example, no longer see their subjects they teach as being valuable in and of themselves, and so they look uh, for an in- extrinsic purpose to justify their role. Now, firstly, can you talk about moral authority in, in the sense that that you've written about here? Yeah, so I, I would very much link it with exactly as you read out in the quote there, a sense of, of purpose and a, a belief in the the mission, if you like, of what you're doing. So to, to make that a bit more concrete, one of the problems that we've got in the UK right now, I think it's a very big problem and it's not really being given the attention it, it properly deserves, is that uh, with, with COVID um, and with the pandemic, uh, there was huge directives to work from home. Um, you know, all the civil service, while well, schools closed, doctors refused to see patients uh, other than people with COVID. Um, cancers have gone undiagnosed. The civil service en masse worked from home. Now, luckily, you know, and I think this is where we probably are a bit luckier than Australia and, and some other countries around the world. We've, we've kind of got over it. You know, the vaccine's been rolled out to, to huge success, really, or, you know, the, the virus itself has just kind of gone through the population. Um, people with COVID, deaths from COVID, you know, dropped out of it, insignificant now, you know, more likely to catch and die from flu than you are from COVID in the UK right now. It's great, huge success story, but society hasn't got back to normal. Uh, you've still got, particularly amongst the civil service, so this is people kind of in charge of um, passports, driving licences, immigration, you know, they're, they're working from home largely still. They're, they're so reluctant to get back to the office, you know, they're, they're not um, wanting to step foot in the workplace and they're very, very upfront about saying this. And it seems to me that one of the reasons why they don't want to do that is because they see their role as being just a job. You know, it's a few technical things that you have to do. It's emails you have to answer, bits of paper you have to juggle around and complete. And you do that from nine to five and you get your pay packet and everything's absolutely fine. There's no sense underneath that as to why this might be vital to society 
why your role in issuing driving licenses, for example, is absolutely crucial to getting lorry drivers moving and goods shipped about the supply chain from one end of the country to another. You know, there's no moral kind of purpose in terms of of kind of having a, a duty, a moral duty, if you like, to society that what you do is, is can be for some some jobs, you know, bigger and more important than just about your own needs and your own work-life balance. And again, this this kind of narcissism, if you like, that I was talking about earlier. You know, people are very kind of self-indulgent sense that that you know it's my work-life balance, it's how I feel, it's how motivated I am, and it's other people's responsibility to make sure I have this good work-life balance that I am well motivated. I owe nothing to society other than to do the most basic kind of tick box things I need to be able to claim my salary. And to me, that that becomes the most obvious form now in the reluctance of the civil service to return to work. But you see it, like, say, in our academic institutions, in in healthcare, the National Health Service, in, in schools. You know, there's no no sense of mission, no sense of purpose, no sense of anything being morally worthwhile in and of itself. So if you think about, again, you know, I think it's always dangerous and I'm at risk of falling prey to the narcissism that I'm criticising here. But, you know, if I think about my own experience of schooling, like I say, growing up in, in really, you know, fairly financially dire situation in Middlesbrough, um, this would be kind of the 1980s now, um, I went to Catholic school, you know, I'm not practicing Catholic now, I describe myself as an atheist. But the fact is, you know, being in a Catholic school, we were taught by nuns who had a vocation, you know, they, they didn't see us as problems to be managed. They had some kind of real belief that they could teach us, they could inspire us, they could make us better than we were. And, you know, I'm, I thank those nuns for being sat here talking to you today, because I think I got a really amazing education, thanks to them. But I think it wasn't because they were just doing the job to get the paycheck. It was because they had this sense of, of moral conviction about what they were doing, that I think is just really lacking today. And, and that it's that vacuum that we then have at the heart of our institutions that woke then fills. So, as you say, the 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 this sort of wokeness you know fills that uh, because i'm sure that you know the managers in the civil service and, and everywhere are, are, are all about you know diversity training and the rest of it so you end up going on these crusades why is it seemingly so hard to simply say we're an ink cartridge store let's focus on delivering goods and services or we're a small we're a local council uh one of many let's fix the potholes get the bins collected instead of, and this is true, this happened in my neighbouring council, instead of putting up bright red uh, racism not welcome signs on the on the street poles, like huge, like this would have cost a lot of money. And I'm looking at that uh, and it, it's an expensive area too. So I'm just like, wow, what, is there is a racism problem? So surely, you know, the majority of people are fed up with having to do everything with one hand tied behind their backs. None of these, none of these institutions, organisations, whatever, are doing what they're meant to do. No, completely, utterly. I mean, I could give you so many examples of that from the UK. So, I mean, I'm about to go into London this afternoon. You ride the, the tube in London and it's just one advert after another kind of instructing you in how to behave. You know, the latest things are all about staring 
staring is sexual harassment don't stare at people I mean staring's obviously never quite defined you know how many seconds of looking at someone counts as staring compared to just glancing you know it's, it's kind of a very weird thing but but you're absolutely right you know the money that must go into all of these poster campaigns compared to actually just improving the transport network so you don't have to stand so long on a tube station uh, late at night would probably do far more to protect women's safety if that's what they're interested in. Um, but, you know, as to your bigger question, I, I think there's so many different things at play here. I think one thing is like a huge degree of moral cowardice um, when when confronted with opposition, you know, when confronted with somebody saying, do you know what, I think we should put up all these posters. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are thinking, well, hang on a minute, shouldn't we be better off spending the money improving transport? But to say that you risk being... Oh, so you, you're in favour of sexual harassment then. You think it's good for men to stare <laughs> at women, you know, particularly on the, the kind of gender stuff. I mean, there's a horrific case in the UK news today about a girl who was kind of hounded out, 18-year-old girl hounded out of school because they had a guest speaker in who was talking all about LGBTQ ideas and, and gender ideology. And she just politely asked a question and, and kind of challenged, again, politely, intellectually, the, the speaker and a gang of 60 girls surrounded her, swearing, spitting, shouting at her. Um, she ran. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But but rather than the teachers doing their job properly, I think, and defending her, I mean... They were handing out handing out weapons and stuff to the kids. <laughs> go for it. Give her one. They they well, the girls left the school and they apologized to the rest of the pupils, the sixty who'd been surrounding her, for not protecting their safety. You know, for allowing these transphobic comments to be raised and putting all the other girls at risk. And it's like we've lost our minds. And and a lot of this is just cowardice of people who know these things are wrong. No, it's not good for mobs of 60 to surround one girl. And yet don't speak out about it. And I think, it, it you know, it's it, partly I think it is just, just cowardice. Partly I think lots of people just want an easy life. You know, they, they don't want to get bogged down in all this. They see what happens. And they do just think, I want to get home to my kids and cook tea and get on with it. Um, they don't they don't want to be embroiled in all of these controversies. Well, the work seemed to fight with a different set of rules here. Now, you, you can use facts, you can use logic, reason or statistics to combat any argument that they make. But their objective seems not to to do the right thing in inverted commas which which is what they they want you to think by the way but but to win at all costs now how do you fight an adversary like that do we need to get dirty oh. <laughs> um, i mean i'm not i'm not opposed to that but I think in some ways you want to rise above it a little bit. I mean, I, I think the con kind of the conclusion of my book is that there are two things that really does, and they're, they're interconnected, two things that, that really do help to push back against this. It, again, it seems to me um, what what kind of woke people want least is, is scrutiny. Uh, they would far rather be making these decisions behind closed doors about putting up these posters or, or placards or changing policy on who can use which toilets 
you know, they'd far rather do that in an office with the door shut, with nobody listening, and then just present it to the rest of the world. You know, this is just a fait accompli. Of course, you know, men and women can both. Of course, it's okay for teenage boys to be sharing a tent with teenage girls if they identify as a girl themselves. You know, no problem. And, and the beauty from their perspective of doing all of this behind a closed door and then just presenting it as a fait accompli is that the people who criticize then appear to be the odd ones out. You know, why are you starting a culture war? We were quite happy making these decisions behind closed doors. Now you're coming along and it kind of pushes the blame for who's who started all of this onto the people who raised the questions. So I think two things I could say I needed to really combat this and it's democracy and free speech. And I think they're very, very interlinked. But I think actually shining, not letting them get away with making these decisions behind closed doors, not letting them get away with presenting things to us as as kind of a fait accompli, but actually questioning, um, insisting that we have free speech, insisting that we're able to to question and challenge and that these ideas are put to debate, I think is, is absolutely vital. And then the more we bring in kind of democratic accountability even better and uh, certainly in the UK you know when people have tried to rename streets or rename schools or or tear down statues whenever these things have been put to a public vote the public have voted no you know actually we're quite happy with things the way they are and that doesn't mean to say people are racist it doesn't mean to say people are, are ignorant and not aware of history It means people are able to shine that spotlight on what's going on, take a look and say, actually, yeah, you know, the past was a mixture of good and bad. But but these street names, these statues, they don't necessarily have the same connotations that they may have had when they were first put up and they've become part of our heritage and culture. They mean something a bit different to us nowadays. Um, And we're quite happy just to keep them. Thank you. Whenever politicians have stood for parliament who've been kind of completely woke, They've, they've, they've lost, you know, they, they lose. And I think, you know, we need more free speech. We need more democracy. We, we can't let them get away with imposing change on us from behind closed doors. Well, just just sticking with fighting back for, for just one more question. Um, we've seen some people that, that we respect, you know, fellow podcasters or, or social commentators that, that are on our side and, and they go a little bit too far and, and becoming at times a little bit nasty. Is there a risk of crossing over to the dark side and being a sneering, closed-minded, anti-woke star? Because it's it's very unattractive. Yeah, it is. I agree with you completely. And I think I think there's always a danger. I always check myself. You know, have you gone too far? You know, I do worry about that from time to time. And again, it's something I worried about even in using the word woke in the title of my book, you know, was I um, just feeding into a culture war, inflaming a culture war just for a kind of cheap thrill? (laughs) Um, And, I, you know, I I genuinely wouldn't advocate that because I I think there's nothing to be gained from sinking to their level. Um, You know, there's nothing to be intellectually or morally gained from, from falling into that trap. And I think for me, you know, the reason why the best basis, I think, for challenging woke views is to actually say, actually kind of in some, it sounds silly to say outwoke them. And I, I don't I don't really mean outwoke them, but actually point out where that the, the, for me, the big problem with critical race theory, for example, is that it's racist. 
you know, it, it divides people up according to skin color. It, it says that your skin color is the most important defining feature about you. Whereas I actually think skin color is the least important thing about a person. I'm far more interested in what do they think? What do they do? You know, I guess the old Martin Luther King thing about the content of their character. To me, judging people on that basis is far more um, progressive, far more anti-racist. Actually defining people according to, putting people into racial categories and, and judging them according to those racial categories, to me is like the most racist thing you can do. To me, the reason why I'm so critical of transgender ideology is because I think it's incredibly sexist. It essentially says if you like wearing pink dresses and playing with dolls, then you're clearly a girl. You know, if you like football and rough and tumble and, and running around playing with guns, then you're clearly a boy. And to me, what would be much more progressive would be to say, you know, you can dress how you like, play with whatever you like, do whatever you like, have whatever ambitions you like. And be a girl or a boy, you know, it doesn't matter. These things are not fixed. I think that would be far more progressive. So to me, the best way to challenge woke is, is not to kind of become racist or sexist, heaven forbid, but actually to, to kind of take the moral high ground and, and really be more genuinely anti-racist and anti-sexist and, and expose the flaws in their argument, you know, how how they are actually rehabilitating very old, very prejudiced, very backward ideas. Well, I guess I will uh, begrudgingly relinquish my racism and sexism for the moment. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, look, how aware of this stuff is the average Joe? Because I was just thinking about when we talk to people we know or normal people about this, they think we're paranoid, they think we're obsessed or, you know, we hear this, they say, oh, those are just right-wing talking points. That's what progressive people we know say. One of my wife's friends thinks that my wife and me are alt-right because we were critical of lockdowns and some masking policies. Uh, and another of my friends, you, while you were talking, I just thought of this example. He says this one, which is this sort of the kill him with kindness lay down thing like, oh, I always think that when someone says, you know, mad stuff like, you know, the, the CRT stuff, he goes, I always think that whatever's happened to them is way worse than whatever I'm feeling. Like, you know, to get, it's sort of like, he's not exactly saying that they're right, but he's saying that they're, you know, going through something. And I'm, I did that, that they, these types of things drive me crazy. I mean, what, 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 what do we do about this? <laughs> yeah, so I get different friends. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's a difficult one, and I think I think again it comes back to this idea that they would rather not actually discuss the intellectual or political basis for why they have their views and say, you know, well these people have their reasons, or you're just saying alt-right talking points you know really what they're saying is is let's not drill down into the intellectual or political origins here it's all a bit too complicated it's all a bit too nasty just accept what i'm saying is right without subjecting it to scrutiny and and i think they say that because they that's their only option. It doesn't stand up to scrutiny. As soon as you really begin to analyze, like say whether it's gender ideology or critical race theory, as soon as you really intellectually, forensically take these, these um, ideas apart and, and really dismantle them and drill down into where they come from, um, you know, what, what beliefs are, are underpinning them, they, they crumble 
and they crumble because, like I say, it is it is rehabilitating. There are so many parallels with old-fashioned racism and sexism that they just can't withstand this this scrutiny. So, kind of moral platitudes is all that these people have got. Um, but you know, it's it's a very difficult question to to know how to respond. I, personally, I don't think there is this huge gap between a kind of of real politics based on economics or, or kind of real political issues and culture wars politics anymore. You know, I think the whole thing has become completely merged one into another. And I think in some ways, if, if again, if we are going to have, in inverted commas, a kind of real class-based politics back, you actually need to tackle the culture war issues first, almost, because nobody is going to listen to working class people saying we want more money we want better working conditions if their lifestyle is is completely being trashed as as kind of transphobic um white supremacist bigoted horrible people and and in a way you've got to kind of win the culture war to to argue the case that working class people are decent human beings like everybody else who deserve to be listened to um before you can then go on to fight other political battles so and and I, I think more and more people are in some ways becoming aware of these issues you know I think parenthood for example has a massive impact upon people's lives and it's very easy to say well do you know what I think all children should be brought up to be gender neutral and um it doesn't matter if boys and girls share tents on camps away or share toilets at schools you know this is all just lovely and this is called gender neutrality you know wait until you have a 13 year old daughter uh, and wait until that 13 year old daughter wants to go on camp with a 15 year old boy who's decided for the duration of the camp that he's trans and wants to sleep in the same tent as your daughter wants to use the same shower block as your daughter and I know that's an incredibly emotive argument, but it's also kind of real life examples of, of what's happening. And I think also you then, a lot of people do then change their views very rapidly when they're put into that situation themselves. Well, we'd, li- we'd like to get your, your your opinions on on how we might might win this war, this culture war. But before we do so, I just want to talk, talk a little bit about victimhood. Uh, now, now, you talk at length in the book about how victimhood victimhood has become a badge of honor uh, why would someone want to be perceived as a victim what happened to uh what can't kill me makes me stronger <laughs> yeah it's a very good point you know and again i think this is something which has been building for a number of years now where we kind of gain um respect in society on the basis of parading our vulnerabilities and again um you know at risk a little bit of sounding like a broken record but but you know if you think no working class battles were won on that basis not not just working class battles but no no um progress in civil rights more broadly you know women um didn't get the vote for example in the 1900s early 1900s by parading their victimhood um they won the vote by throwing bricks through windows um, by claiming, uh, arguing the point that they were just as, as good and as capable of men and as deserving of the vote as men and, and were equal to men to, to get the vote in that way. Um, 
but but I think there's been a real kind of cultural shift where particularly in in areas like mental health, for example, people are kind of put on a pedestal if they're prepared to parade their vulnerabilities. They're seen as being almost morally superior for having these experiences of um, being vulnerable or, or being vict- a victim. Much of it, again, stems from identity politics. And, you know, if you wanted to get into the academic stuff behind it, you can look at theories around intersectionality, which were essentially about, it seems to me very crudely, about creating kind of pyramids of, of victims and the people at the top, you know, the people who are the most victimised people in society. And I think this is why one of the reasons why the whole trans movement's taken off to such a huge extent, you know, far more than than what is warranted by the, the actual number of transgender people, is because these people can claim to be kind of more victimised uh, and do claim to be more victimised than any other group in society. And, and so they become kind of uh, the highest moral status, if you like, off the back of that uh, elevated victimhood, as if we we almost kind of sit at their feet and learn lessons from them. Um, yeah, and, and I think that that kind of shift has, has really meant that we then valorise vulnerability over strength. But, but another way of putting that is we valorise passivity over agency, we, we valorise somebody coming in and kind of treating us as, as patients, if you like, or, or um, vulnerable children um, in need of therapy and professional assistance over capable, rational beings able to steer the course of not just our own lives, but actually the direction of society more broadly. So the title of your book says uh, that Woke won. So let's talk about winning. Let's say that this is a battle. Firstly, why do we need to win this battle? Well, what does it look like if we just walk away? Yeah, I mean, my fear if we just walk away is that the ideas that we've been talking about, I think, well, my, my real fear, biggest fear, if you like, is that work can actually be incredibly authoritarian. And you've got huge contradictions between the kind of hashtag be kind kind of slogan that lots of woke people are very prolific about using on their Twitter profiles. And, and it's all caps, of... isn't it? Yelling <laughs> it's kind. an order. <laughs> be kind or else. <laughs> yes. uh, and you frequently see what the or else means. You know, they leave you in no uncertain doubt. Um, but they kind of hide behind this mantra of be kind. But there's a real authoritarianism um, upon that. And, I mean, one way you can see this is the complete hissy fits people have had over the prospect of Elon Musk taking over Twitter. You know, you'd maybe get a tiny bit more free speech and people are losing their minds over this. And the fear that we may be able to tweet a little bit more freely about what we really think. I mean, you know, it's just bizarre, even the whole assumption that, oh, well, we're just going to or be really racist because suddenly we've got free speech. Well, like, no, if you're not racist, you're not suddenly going to become racist just because you can put what you want on Twitter or maybe even just a little bit more than you can now. Yeah, it's, it's utterly bizarre, but it reveals the the scale of their paranoia, you know, and, and their, their kind of condescending fears about us. But it also... Um, shows the lengths they will go to 
to stop people being able to speak freely, to to interact freely, you know. So the, the call seems to be, if Elon Musk takes over Twitter, we must have national governments around the world or supranational institutions stepping in to clamp down to make sure this free speech never, ever happens. You know, and you look at the way... Um, uh, kind of legislation in the UK, for example, around non-crime hate incidents and and hate crime legislation, you have to literally have a police officer knocking on your door because you've misgendered someone on Twitter, for example. I mean, that's terrifying. And if woke does win completely, you know, that to me is the world that we're 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 living in a world where your your very thoughts essentially are policed and shaped um, in line with this one particular worldview, um, and and you're expected to to get in line, to be obedient, to to stick with the script, with no veering off, no freedom. Uh, and as we said earlier, you know, it's essentially a racist, sexist, divisive, horrible world. And it's also incredibly authoritarian. So I think it's imperative that we win. But I think I do think we will. <laughs> well, we, 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 we are running out of time. Just a couple more tiny little questions. The subtitle of your book uh, features the words democracy, tolerance and reason. Uh, why, we sh- why should we care about these things? I mean, I ask this question because if these words tend to elicit eye rolls from people here in Australia when I say these are great things. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, <laughs> I had a few arguments really when we were coming up with the book title and subtitle about whether um, that these were appropriate words, you know, who, who would this book appeal to if this was the subtitle. And, you know, the question was was posed, which one of those words exactly is right wing? You know, because that was the assumption, you know, that these words will attract eye roll, they'll, they'll kind of label the book as being a right wing book. But that's a terrible indictment of where politics is at nowadays, because uh, to me, it's a terrible indictment of the left, that the left has abandoned these words. To me, there's absolutely nothing inherently right wing about reason, tolerance, democracy. You know, these are, I think, should be very important left wing values. Um, and if they're not, that's the left's fault. You know, the left has abandoned these principles and, and it needs to have a good, long, hard look at itself about why it, it's. But but if you just, you know, is, is democracy really? Are we saying democracy is a right wing value, reason, tolerance? You know, I, I, would in, I would go further. I'd include kind of liberty in there, freedom, freedom of speech. You know, the, the, these these values have, I agree with you, you know, they have been captured by the right. But that's the left's weakness. That's left's fault. The left has abandoned these principles, uh, and they're not. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't be right-wing principles, and, and we have to reclaim them. I think people on the left, if if we want a genuinely progressive politics, you know, we have to take these words back. We have to say, you know, reason, liberty, freedom, democracy, especially democracy. You know, the, these are principles, values, which, which are to the benefit of everyone in society. And when it's to the benefit of everyone, numerical um, demography dictates that they're to the benefit of the working class people the most because they're the, the bulk of society, they're the, the masses, if you like, benefit the most from these principles. Just briefly, uh, can you tell us about the organisation you founded, uh, CIEO? What, what is this organisation? What does it do? 
Yeah, so it, it's KEO. <laughs> uh, it's not, people think it's an acronym. It's not actually an acronym. It's a Latin word, which means to ignite, to set in motion, to provoke. And I, I worked, as you said at the beginning, I worked in academia for, for over 12 years. And you realise that there's an awful lot of things that you can't say in a university. Um, it's very difficult for me being a pro-Brexit academic, for example, uh, which doesn't mean to say it's impossible, but it becomes very, very difficult to hold certain views and to be happy and to have a life working in a university. Also, I think a lot of academic publishing formats are very uh well difficult i would say if you're genuinely interested in exchange of ideas i mean the publishing timescale for example with many academic journals can run to like two years so you write your article and then you're kind of all set you really want to intervene in a really cutting edge debate and so you're great you know this will be published in 2025 now that if you're genuinely interested in not just notching points on your cv but actually having an impact on an intellectual or political debate, it's not good enough to have something that's published two years. You know, you yeah. don't always want to... At I'm this not, rate, women will be erased entirely <laughs> exactly, in that exactly. time frame. So. Everything you write becomes out of date. So I guess what I'm aiming to do with Keo is to provide a platform for not just academics, certainly we've got more non-academics writing on the site than, than academics, but people with kind of serious... Um, ideas they want to put across um, might have a bit longer than your your simple um, opinion piece that that you'd get in a newspaper or on many online sites. Not obviously, not obviously nothing wrong with that, but something a bit longer, perhaps a bit more substantial, but that they uh, want to to make a more immediate impact on the world than than a kind of seven thousand word piece with fifty seven pages of, of footnotes and. Um, won't be published for another two years. So, so I think a bit can be long and substantial, but also a bit more immediate as well. That That's my hope. Well, I, I encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, 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 but uh, our final question uh, we ask all of our guests is, uh, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Oh, good one. Um, <laughs> back in my brains, just having finished the book, I'm looking at my bookshelf now in embarrassment to... Be honest. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick one which I promise is honest, but I've been reading it for a very very long time. I've got to admit, but then when you see how thick it is, so this is a book, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Arts Vitae, Ars Vitae. Uh, it's by a real intellectual hero of mine, um, Elizabeth Lash Quinn. Um, she's the daughter of Christopher Lash, the sociologist. And you can you can see where my bookmark is there. I'm up to. She's so mentioned probably, in your in your in how work one. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, she also wrote a really great book uh, looking at, at racism and like the kind of the industry uh, that's grown up around anti race uh, anti racism training. Uh, so I'm up to page 140. But this is a kind of philosophical sweep of of kind of the it says the fate of inwardness and the return of the ancient arts of living so it looks at kind of ideas around stoicism and and kind of ancient philosophies and and how they're relevant for the modern age but but not in a kind of cheap psychobabble way she's very critical of this idea that you take a philosophical quote and you turn it into a meme she's actually interested in what real lessons can we learn from um, the philosophers of the past. So I, I would definitely recommend this, but I am embarrassed about how how long it's taken me to read it. But 
I am also genuinely reading it right now. Dear listener, it looks expensive it, it and does. heavy. <laughs> yes. it, it, it's not, it wasn't that expensive. Honestly, it is heavy. It's not probably why it's taking me so long to read because it's not one to sling in your bag. It's beautiful, by the way. It is, it's, it's also it is got pictures people. in it as well, which I have That's to what say I need. is a real bonus. <laughs> and she makes lots of, um, even though I'm saying she's talking about philosophy, I make it sound like it's a real intellectual heavyweight of a book. It's, it's actually really, really not because she, the thing she does so superbly well is she links all of these things into modern cultural references as well. So she's looking at, at films. You know, I've gone and watched films that I've never heard of before off the back of the things she's talking about in this book, uh, pop music, advertising. Oh, she wow. really draws mm. those connections. And so the pictures are, are of like film posters and advertisements. It's, it's really good. Oh, I'm, a, I'm suitably intrigued. Yes, yes. Well, your book, your latest book is How Work Won, The Elitist Movement That Threatens Democracy, Tolerance and Reason. We recommend everybody go out and, and buy that book, read that book. Now, if people are, are, are interested to follow you or, or to read more, do you, are you on social media? Can they follow you anywhere? Yeah, definitely. I'm on Twitter at JoeWilliams293. Uh, the numbers don't mean anything whatsoever. Um, but yeah, at JoeWilliams293. And you can also read uh, Joe's work at Spiked. Definitely. Yes. yes, we love Spiked. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.